Thank you. It's always, um, it's always great uh, and a blessing, a privilege to speak here at Irvine. Um, I'm usually at the Brea campus, so it's always fun to, uh, to see the new faces and, and meet people. I love it. Um, you know, what's funny is uh, I've got a, a daughter who's now in high school, right? She's a freshman in high school, and uh, I caught her uh, once. She was, uh, upon reflecting on how, how difficult, I guess, or how much work she had and how hard her day was, and, you know, she was doing swim, had to come to school by 5.30 in the morning, then she would have classes all day, then she would have swim again, and then she has whatever, ASB, and then she would have to do her homework, then I'm yelling at her to like, you know, read the Bible once in a while, and, and, uh, and you know, she's reflecting upon her uh, younger <coughs> cousin who's still in elementary school, and she's like, oh, man, I wish I was young again. And, yeah, it was so funny to me because, you know, in my eyes, right, it's a, it's a kid looking upon another kid <laughs> and saying, oh, I wish I was their age. And I'm like, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're still pretty much a kid. Uh, but, you know, I think when we consider life, maybe many of us would agree with the statement that things seem to get harder, uh, things seem to get more complicated, things seem to get more stressful, right, as we get older, uh, you know, and, and, and so maybe that sort of trend that takes place has caused us to smile less, uh, maybe it's caused us to laugh less, maybe there used to be more of a carefree spirit uh, when we were younger, um, you know, maybe there was just what, what we would describe as more happiness or more peace more joy in our hearts. You know, the interesting thing about the concept of joy as talked about in the New Testament, and, you know, we're starting a, a series on the fruit of the Spirit, or we started last week, we talked about love last week, we're on joy today. If, if you think about fruit of the Spirit, all right, from Galatians 5, the whole concept of fruit of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is working in you to produce fruit, so what that should mean is that the older we get, we should actually experience what? Not less joy, but more joy, right? Because that's the work of the Spirit in our lives. The work of the Spirit in our lives, as we're abiding in Him and living in Him, the, the more mature we get in our walks and in our lives, there should be more love, there should be more joy. And so with that principle, I want us to consider or maybe with that thought in mind, I want us to consider the passage of 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, because it is one of these great passages in, uh, in Scripture that talks about joy. It talks about rejoicing. And I think there's so much there in that passage that, that we could really go through and over to help us understand what leads to true biblical joy, despite maybe the increasing complexities and anxieties and stresses uh, and whatever trials and hardships in our lives as we get old. And, and you know, don't, hey, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling you guys old. You guys, we all look young in my book. <laughs> um, but you, you look at that passage, and the first thing that jumps out at me, or, and, and before we do this, I think it would be good for us to maybe have a working definition of joy. And so I'm going to steal from Tim Keller's uh, definition of joy. He talks about joy uh, as a delight in God for who he is. 
Because he wants to uh, differentiate between maybe just like happiness, right? Most people want to do that. But even within Christian authors, within theologians, within uh, uh, the group of pastors and preachers maybe that make up American evangelical thinking, there, there is a little bit of, you know, different thoughts on what joy is. You'll have, you know, one pastor who says joy is not really about that elation or happiness, and then you'll have many others who say, no, it is that elation and happiness. Well, I think Tim Keller has a great working definition. It's a delight, a delight, all right? So that is some kind of emotional state, but it's also a mental state, and it's also a state of the soul, a delight in God for who he is. And maybe what will help you to understand it more is to consider what the opposite of joy is. And he says the opposite of joy is hopelessness or despair. What's also helpful is maybe to consider what counterfeit joy is. And he says counterfeit joy is that elation we have because of our situation or because of what we're going through or because of maybe some blessing in life. He says, that's not true joy. That's, you know, you would probably call that happiness. Okay? So having, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, it's in your notes. If you got a bulletin, it's, it's there, so you don't have to, like, write it down or anything. It's, it's there. And I know you look at that outline and you think, whoa, Sam's got a lot of things to go through. <laughs> and if you know me, you're like, we're not going to finish. We're going to finish next week. No, I'm going to finish. All right. Uh, uh, <clears throat> all right. What leads to true joy, according to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, Point A, the great mercy of God. All right, verse 3. Peter starts off by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And that is so important. Even right there, according to his great mercy. You see, this is looking at life with the recognition that what we have received is by God and from God. It is according to his great mercy. You know, so much of our lives is spent trying to achieve and accomplish things by our own strength, by our own education, by our own wisdom, and by our own efforts. I catch myself telling my daughter all the time, hey, if you work hard, you will receive the fruits of that effort, right? Don't give up. Don't slack off. You know, even in the pool, I'm, I'm always, you know, after her meets, I'm always telling her, hey, I think I saw you give up. <laughs> I, and the funny thing is, I know, like, I have no clue about swimming, <laughs> right? If you put me in any pool, I can make it from one wall to the other, and I'm tired. I'm, like, tired. I'm out of breath. But I'm the expert on swimming when it comes to my daughter. You gave up, didn't you? <laughs> the funny thing is, she always says, yeah, I kind of did. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it. I could tell. He said, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, but you see, this line of thinking is, I think it's fine for when we're trying to accomplish most things in life. But when it comes to the greatest dilemma of our life, which is separation from God, a holy creator, a holy king, who not only created us, but gave us this glorious purpose in life, thing worth living for and then we said no you know what that's not what we want and now we have that separation and and you see the only solution is the great mercy of our God the great mercy of our God and see making that a, a part of our lives making that a part of our perspective is so important if we're going to have joy because one of the big problems we face as human beings is we always have to fight 
that thought that we deserve more. We deserve better. And it's because we think we deserve more and because we think we deserve more, we tend to get upset, we tend to get bitter. We, we tend to blame and accuse and question God for when we th- don't get what we think we deserve. But you see, when we make the great mercy really the first thing we understand about God, and we make that the first thing we understand about who we are and our own life that we have, you see, you, we, we have to get rid of this, oh, we deserve, we deserve, we deserve, we deserve. And it just kind of changes our perspective to, man, we didn't deserve life, but God gave it to me. Okay? Secondly, all right, if, if we read on, all right, what is it according to his great mercy that he did or he caused? Well, reading on in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? Born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is point B. Now, if you think about who wrote this letter, Peter, okay, he was one of the original apostles of Christ. And he claims that uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of this letter. He starts off, in fact, the first thing he says is, look, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say that to brag, but, you know, there's some weird kind of credit that we get sometimes when we have this eyewitness connection. You know, I, 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 um, I had the chance once to meet Kobe Bryant, you know, the, this whole Kobe Bryant retirement thing, right? Big, what, do, we have, do we have Laker fans in South OC, or is it... I don't know. Okay. I, I just didn't know. I, you know, I mean, you guys are pretty far away from the Staples Center. I could only imagine, like, trying to go to a Laker game must be, you got to take the day off from work. You got to figure out who's picking up your kids from school. So I didn't know if there's any Laker fans here. But, you know, I grew up in L.A., and so uh, since I was 20-something, I'm used to watching Kobe on the Lakers. Well, one of the cool things was uh, there was a time where um, uh, there was a sports I think it was Sports Authority was opening up near my father's house. And so my sister, I don't know why, because she's not a Laker fan, but she decided she wanted to get in line so that she could meet Kobe and get an autograph. So she stood in that line and kind of camped out a little bit for a long time. And it was like an hour before uh, time for my sister to meet him. And I thought, you know what? My sister's in line. I can join her. I can just join her and so I got a a jersey a Kobe jersey and literally showed up like 15 minutes before and you know and thank you sister you're the best Uh, and I came up and you know he looked like this young kid I think he was like I don't know 20 at that time he was in some kind of track you know thing warm-up thing Adidas whatever and uh, hey Kobe and he you know he was sitting down he looked at me he's like hey yeah (laughs) I was like hey uh, I'm a fan of the Lakers he's all good all right, all right here, here's the jersey. Can you sign it? He's like, of course, man. He signs it. He, you know, puts Kobe. And at that time, he was uh, number eight, you know. And, uh, uh, and then I said, hey, can I take a picture with you? And he's like, of course. So I have this very blurry picture of me and Kobe because uh, this was before digital cameras, really. And the person who was taking it was so excited. <laughs> they, they were like, ah. <sighs> But for a long time, I walked around and said, hey, so whenever Kobe came up in any discussion, you, you know what I would say, right? Oh, hey, I, I met him. So it made me some kind of authority on Kobe, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, let me tell you. He's kind of like a little bit of a jerk, you know? He's kind of like, a little bit like, hey, hey, he's too cool, you know? Too cool to give you time of the day. But it was from that, like, 30 seconds of one-on-one. 
Peter, when he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's not saying it to brag about, hey, I, I met the guy, yeah, we got to hang out. He's saying it because he's saying, look, there is a certain amount of authority in what I'm about to say. I'm not, I'm not trying to just make something up. I'm not some liar who's fabricating something and trying to tell you how you should live your life. I'm someone who gave my life to him for several years. I dropped everything, and my life became all about him. I was an apostle of Jesus Christ. But think about, for that person, what must have been going through his mind, what must have been going through his heart, when Christ was hanging on the cross, and when Christ breathed his last. I'm not sure exactly what kind of hopes and expectations that Peter might have had when he decided, you know what, I am going to put my entire life on hold. Everything that I've been moving towards and working towards in my life up to this point, I'm going to drop everything right now because this man, this guy is something special. I'm going to do everything with him, for him. I'm going to be, he's going to be my teacher. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to follow him everywhere he goes. I'm going to leave my everything behind, and, so, and I'm not sure if that involved certain expectations or hopes or dreams or desires, but whatever was involved in his mind and in his heart and in his life, when Christ breathed his last on the cross, as a person, I wonder if that was the end of your hopes, Right? Because for everything to happen, Christ had to stay alive. It had only been a few years. Things were just getting started. Things were just beginning to snowball, and now he's gone. The pain, the sorrow, the despair, the hopelessness, all of that, though, was changed completely 180 degrees around in just a matter of a few days when there was the empty tomb and the news of Christ's resurrection began to spread like wildfire and Peter realized that what Christ had promised, what he had predicted, what he had foretold, what he had said was all coming true and that the victory of Christ was real. That he was more than just a man. That the connection he had to the Father, the crazy things that Christ kept saying, these things now had weight. Because even death could not keep Christ in the tomb. And so it wasn't just this idea of Peter being reunited to someone he cared for or someone he had been spending all his time with. It was the idea that Christ was real. It was the idea that his life was real. And the idea that there was victory over even death itself in Christ. And when Christ rose again from the dead, it wasn't that Peter was like, all right, good job, Jesus. I'm so happy for you. You get to kind of live longer now. That's really great. I thought your life was going to be tragically cut short, but now you get to do more. And so good for you, Jesus. I'm really happy for you. Of course not. The resurrection of Christ and that victory was something that brought instant joy and elation to Peter. Why? Because Christ's victory was also his victory. And now what Peter is trying to tell the church is that Christ's victory was not only his victory, but it's also our victory. 
it's the idea that not even death can defeat us. It's the idea that sin cannot defeat us. And that's the living hope that Peter is talking about. Third point is that this living hope through the direction of Jesus Christ from the dead is to, verse 4, is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. I don't know if you've ever been envious of someone that you thought, oh man, this person is going to get a really nice inheritance one day. You're thinking, you know what? Their financial future is secure. It's guaranteed because of their birth, because of their birthright. I don't, know if that's a, I don't know if that's ever a thought you've had about somebody. But think about this. The inheritance that the church has, all right? An inheritance that the church has. And it's something that is, you, you can't destroy it. You can't alter it. You can't change it. You can't destroy it. This inheritance, uh, since back, way back then, is guaranteed yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay, I want you guys to think about something. You know, the more you have, the better you have to be at guarding it. You know, you thought about it? Right? You know, when I was in college, I had a car that I almost wanted someone to steal. It's almost like, man, if somebody would just take it, maybe I'll get some insurance money out of it. I had a friend, and this is a true story. His car was so junky, that was his goal in life, was to get his car stolen. So, you know, he would park his car, leave the cars in the ignition, leave the windows down, leave the door open. He would do everything he could. And I, I, I was a witness to this. And no one ever touched his car. That's how bad it was. And one day he got a bright idea. I'm going to leave a nice, I'm going to leave a TV in the back of the car. Someone's going to take this for sure. And of course, we know what happened. Someone took the TV and left the car. And then, you know, you, you, you grow up and you, you get a better job and you have more finances and, you, and, and so what's the first thing you want to do is you want to buy a nicer car and you get a nicer car, but now you got to put an alarm system on it. Now you got to worry about where you park it. Now you got to think about who's scratching it or who's touching it. Or now you got to worry, should I take this car because it's kind of nice when we're going to L.A. to watch the Lakers or do I take, you know, right? For, if you live in South O.C., I'm sure driving to L.A. starts to feel really different, right, when you get... Closer, closer to L.A. You know, the thing about life is the more you have, the more able you have to be at guarding it, at protecting it. If you have more money, you got to be able to guard it. you got to be able to protect it. you got to be able to invest it. you got to be able to do something with it so it doesn't disappear. It's different when you don't have any money. The thing about this inheritance that's so amazing, if you think about it, is we don't have to spend a single second worrying about securing it. You don't have to figure out how you're going to guard it. You don't have to figure out how you're going to hide it from someone so someone doesn't take it from you. You don't have to figure out how, you know what, how can I make this inheritance stay the same five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. You don't have to figure out how can I make sure I will still have it. 
It's guaranteed and it's protected. Isn't that awesome? Amen? I, I, when I think about that, I get really happy. Love it. You know, in the Old Testament, the inheritance was often language used to describe the promised land uh, for Israel. And, you know, the Israelites were often described as aliens and sojourners, people, you know, wandering through the wilderness. You know, what's interesting about Peter is when you look at verse 1 again of chapter 1, he uses similar language to now talk about the New Testament church. And he's not talking about Jewish people, although there were probably Jewish people in the New Testament church. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people who this kind of language wasn't often used, but he's using it to describe and talk about us. He says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. He, 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 he's comparing us. And in the same way the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, we are also going through the wilderness. This place is not our home, right? But we are on our way to our home. And of course, the inheritance is not just the promised land, a physical land, but it's the eternal kingdom of heaven. And because it's eternal and not physical, it will not change. It will not rot. It will not alter. It will not be destroyed. And further, Peter says, as you think about what God has done for us according to his great mercy and what he has given to us, this hope, this living hope, this ability to have joy, he says, look, even when things are difficult, even when things are difficult, he says we can have this joy. Starting in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the first thing I want you to notice about this verse is, think about the difference in how he describes our trials as to how he has just described the living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our inheritance, right? Because those are the things that are forever and unchanging. And then what does he use to describe our current trials? He says, for a little while. For the parents in here, have you ever said that to your children? I can think of so many situations, so many circumstances in my life as a parent where I've looked at my daughter and I said, hey, this is, it's, I mean, it could be as something simple as trying to swallow a pill, right, medicine, like antibiotics. I, I don't know if someone's a pharmacist in here or who has any pool, but man, sometimes they make those pills very large, right? And for kids, it's like, and so my daughter, sometimes she has a lot of fear in life, and I'd be like, all right, here's your antibiotics. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to choke on that. And so now she's thinking that, and so she can't swallow her medicine, right? She puts it in her mouth, and it's you know, and everything comes back out, and I'm like, just swallow it. It will maybe feel weird in here for like a split second, but it's not going to get stuck. <laughs> it's for a little while, and then it's gone. It could be something as short as that, or it could be something maybe as a longer trial, something relational with friends, something with school, something difficult about having a teacher that's being really hard on her. I say, hey, man, a little while. Next year, that teacher, 
Unless you have to retake geometry, hey, you're done with her. You move on to the next class. It's just a little while. And I wonder if that's the same concept as God looking at us and, you know, we've got our various trials that we're going through. And not to make light of our trials, because I think our trials lead to genuine sorrow. Look, don't, don't misunderstand Peter. Don't misunderstand the fruit of the Spirit. This doesn't mean you're, you, if, if you're super mature and you're, you're abiding in the Holy Spirit that you're not going to experience sorrow in your heart. That's ridiculous. Even Jesus experienced sorrow, didn't he? Even he wept. But what we're talking about is this ability to understand what what we're experiencing in our lives today, and despite the sorrow in our hearts, despite the sadness in our hearts, despite the anxiety in our hearts, that we're still able to have a state of mind and a state of existence that says, I can still delight in God. And he says this can happen because not only is it just a little while, but look at the next verse, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. You see, he says, look, what is more precious than gold in this life? You know, gold is going to be, for Peter right now in his example, uh, the, the, the symbol of maybe what we think is the most important thing in life, the most precious, the most valuable thing in life. And he says, what is that? That's gold, right? But what's even more precious than gold? It's your faith. Because think about it. What happens to gold? Even gold will do what in verse 7? Perish. Right? Even that perishes. But your faith, which is more precious than gold. And then continuing with that example of gold, and it's going to be a great, well-thought-out metaphor for him, because he says, look, you take gold and you stick it in the fire. But you know what happens to gold when you stick it in the fire? It doesn't, it doesn't perish. The gold doesn't disappear. It doesn't rot. In fact, it's purified. And that's the illustration that Peter uses to describe the various trials that he thinks Christians will go through because we're aliens, we're sojourners, we haven't reached our full inheritance yet. It's the idea that somehow we're able to rejoice at the thought of our faith being strengthened by God. The thought that he wouldn't just let us stay where we are, but instead he pushes us, he molds us, he shapes us, and he strengthens us. You know, Clowney, uh, Edmund Clowney, he has a great quote about this. He says, look, trials should not surprise us. Trials shouldn't cause us to question God's faithfulness. I actually don't have the quote for you. You can stop looking. I didn't give it to you. (laughs) Phyllis back there like, oh my gosh, where is It's my fault. I found it late last night. 
He says, trials should not cause us to question God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them because God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so our faith will not fail. You know, think about this. If God is going to have an inheritance for us that is imperishable, and he says, I'm going to guard that imperishable, unchanging, unalterable inheritance, then it would make perfect sense for God to also say, look, not only am I guarding your inheritance, not only am I protecting your inheritance, but I'm also going to guard and protect you, and I'm also going to make sure that you will end up with a faith that is strong enough. Right? Doesn't that make sense? It would be weird if you were a parent that said, you know what, when my child is 50 years old, my child will receive $1 million that I'm setting aside right now. I just picked that number. Don't think I have a million dollars. But you don't spend any energy making sure that your child lives long enough with enough wisdom, with enough life know-how to make it, to receive that inheritance. So if God, on one hand, is going to promise to us this inheritance at the end, then he also has to work on us. He has to strengthen our faith. He has to strengthen our trust. He has to strengthen our hope. He has to cause us to, to, to cling on to him, amen, so that we make it to that inheritance. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That's what God's doing. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we don't have to just quote Clowney. We can also quote Peter on this, starting in verse 12. He says, look, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. (laughs) What's this? What's going on in my life? A trial. It's weird. I shouldn't have trials. No, he's saying, no, that's weird. It's not strange. But rejoice, rejoice because you get to share Christ's sufferings. You also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen to verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. What Peter is saying is, look, I, on one hand, there's going to be suffering that comes into our life because we do things that are wrong. If we do evil, there may be consequences in our life that cause us to suffer. And Peter's hope is that we understand that and we just avoid that kind of suffering. I'm a big believer in that as a church and as Christians, we do not need to provide artificial suffering. Right? So if you go on one of our crossway mission trips, we're not going to artificially make it hard on you. We're not artificially going to say, uh, you know, we're on a mission trip, so we're not going to eat good food. You know, on our Japan trip, I'm going to say, if God provides sushi, we will eat that and enjoy it as long as he's the one who provides that opportunity. I'm not going to say, hey, we're on a mission trip. We shouldn't be eating sushi. We're going to go get noodles. So, so sign up for a Japan mission trip today. I think the deadline is next week, right, Pastor Jen? And, and our whole staff, we share this philosophy. 
Because the reality is God will put enough opportunities for real suffering for Christ in our lives. And those are the opportunities we need to really grow through. And not only that, if there's going to be enough real opportunities for us, if there's going to be enough real trials for us where our faith will be strengthened, then what we really need to avoid are the sufferings that are caused by our own sinfulness. We don't need that. That's unnecessary suffering. Amen. Say amen. Right? We don't need it. We don't have to have it. That even Peter says, I hope that's not going to be a part of your lives. Finally, uh, well, not finally, but moving on, verse uh, uh, 8, our love and faith in Christ Jesus. He says, look, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I almost, this one made me think a little bit, and, and, I, and I try to look into this, and I try to, it's an interesting verse, and it's an interesting statement. But here's the thing, it's almost as if Peter is very impressed with the church. Peter is like, you know what? I saw Christ. That's why I love him. I spent time with him. That's my, why my heart breaks for him. I saw his death and his resurrection, and that's why I have faith in him. But he says to the church, you have not seen him, and yet you love him. You have not seen him, and yet you believe in him. And this is, I think, one of the, I think one of the most important things about having joy in our lives. It's loving and trusting the one person who is worthy of everything, all of our lives, all of our souls, all of our efforts. It's loving Christ. Too many times, we are involved in loving ourselves, and too many times we live our lives trusting ourselves. And so we become the ultimate object of our efforts and our desires and our dreams and our hopes. And guess what? That does not lead to joy. It may lead to temporary happiness, a certain type of good feeling that will result in our souls because of the blessings we may be experiencing or the, the joys that we get to be experiencing, but it will not lead to true joy. In fact, the dangerous part of this is that it will lead to the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you remember last week and you remember reading Galatians 5, not only were there fruits of the Spirit, but there were works of the flesh there was sinfulness that was involved, and those were the things that we ought to be avoiding. And my theory is, and I think it's a good working theory, that when we love ourselves and we live for ourselves and when we trust ourselves and when we live for ourselves, we are more inclined to pursue the works of the flesh than we are the fruits of the Spirit. And so it's kind of counterintuitive because we think if we love ourselves and we serve ourselves and we live for ourselves, we'll be happier. But the opposite happens. In fact, when we love Christ, when we trust Christ, when we live for him, that's when we're able to do what First Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, to rejoice with joy. It's like saying the same thing a couple different times. 
Like, how do you rejoice without joy? But anyways, it's that emphasis, that biblical emphasis, right, that's being placed here. Okay? What do we love? What do we cherish? What do we chase? What do we trust in? Do those things have any ability to truly bring joy into our lives? All of this, I think, can be summed up in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? This is what God has given to us. He saved us. So no matter what we have going on in our lives, no matter what we think we deserve, still God saves us. That's the glorious gospel. He saves us. And so finally, just real quickly, I want to do this is, as we think about the joy that is being developed in our lives by, by the working of the Holy Spirit, I want us to close by thinking about the joy of Christ. The joy of Christ. I don't know what your image of Christ is, right? You know, you see these paintings of Christ. You see, I don't know, right? How many different, like, a famous one is uh, like a, he's like a shepherd in the field somewhere, and he's very peaceful, but he looks very powerful like a good shepherd. There's an image of him sometimes of him knocking on that door. Or maybe the image of Christ on the cross. Right? Maybe sometimes we just think of Christ as that solemn, serious guy. Always on a mission. But scripture makes it clear that there was great joy in the heart of Christ. Luke 15, 7 tells us that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is great joy over one sinner who repents. Look how many reasons for great joy are in this room today. Churches throughout Southern California, throughout the world, throughout the land, how many reasons for great joy. Christ had incredible joy in his heart because he knew that his children were turning away from sin and turning to the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, and it's a famous passage, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen to this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews tells us and reminds us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy. The joy, and that's the exact same word that is used in every verse we looked at today that talks about joy. The joy that was set before Christ. He is a living example of what Peter is describing in this passage of that various trial, that suffering that lasts for a little while. Because he's able to see the living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the inheritance that is assured and guaranteed, the faith that is being strengthened in his church and in his believers, that was the joy that was set before him, and that joy was so great, he was willing and able to endure the cross and the shame of the cross. And finally, John 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, 
and that your joy may be full. The joy of Christ is also our joy. And he gives that to us as a gift. And right before he says this, Christ says, look, I obeyed the Father and I received great joy. My joy became full, but that joy also, I want that to be your joy. I want that joy to be in you and that it would be full. Stay and abide in the true vine. That's the passage, John 15. Stay connected to Christ for that true joy. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I know, I know that joy is something that seems fleeting, seems difficult to have, or hard to grasp onto, right? It seems like a slippery thing. Because when we think about our own hearts and we think about our lives, maybe we have moments of joy, but it's hard to characterize that state of existence, that state of mind, and that state of heart of the light in God that we're talking about here, right? And so it seems a little slippery. But let's trust Scripture. The work of the Holy Spirit is producing that in us, amen? That's the fruit that is being worked out in our lives. And so what we need to do is to trust God and the Holy Spirit, but also to consider the things that we looked at this morning and to understand that maybe what we need is a correction of our perspective of life, maybe a reminder of the great mercy, the salvation, and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And maybe comparing, in light of that, comparing the temporary things that we're going through today. The things that for a little while are causing us sometimes tremendous hardship, but it's for a little while. And being able to really tap into the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross and despise the shame. Let's bow our heads. just want to ask you to take a moment And maybe just consider First uh, Peter 1, 3-9, and just make a simple prayer request. Lord, this is what I want more of in my life, more of in my heart, or in my mind. Your great mercy, living hope of your resurrection, the reminder of your imperishable inheritance, strength for the trials I'm going through today, more love in Christ, more trust in Christ. Maybe just pick one or two things and say a personal prayer before I pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for the joy in your heart, the love in your heart, for the enduring of the cross and all that shame and all that agony to gain your church, 
Our inheritance is you and the eternal, eternal glory of heaven. But I guess your inheritance was us, the church. We pray that in our daily lives, Lord, our hearts would look towards you, that we'd be able to delight in you, in who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. That's our prayer request. That you'll remind us every day of your great gospel love for us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.